Good morning. Sunday morning. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Wrong Think Radio. I'm your host, Aaron, broadcasting from just outside the nation's capital in beautiful northern Virginia. And I'm Alan, coming to you from the lovely and overcast greater Seattle metropolitan area. And this is Wrong Think Radio. It's the two-hour live program that we put on every single week to bring you guys our facts and analysis of the news, the media, and what's going on in the world. But of course, today is going to be a special program. We're going to have to, of course, cover some of the news because there are people that are going to expect it. So when we start off, we'll go through some of the hot news items that have happened, but we're dedicating the majority of this show to celebrating Halloween, which is, of Mm. course, tomorrow. But most of the people who listen to this program like to listen to it on Monday. So for them, it will be Halloween And we are going to dive into some of the more ethereal subjects of our time. But let's, of course, start it out. There's too much weirdness. There's too much paranormal, I'll say, uh, that has occurred over the week um, that we're just absolutely going to have to cover. And the first one that I want to bring up, mostly just because it's funny, is that Elon Musk has officially taken over Twitter. He is now running the company, uh, stating he's not particularly the CEO. He's considering himself the chief twit. Um, But that has already caused a lot of screaming at the sky, panic and awfulness. And regardless of your opinion of Elon Musk or whatever it might be, I think it has to be notable how upset the media and liberals are over the fact that Elon Musk is running Twitter and the only thing that he's ever said about the platform or how he's going to run it is that it shouldn't be as overly moderated as it is. And this is causing a panic attack. Yeah. And I think that that's exceedingly notable. Why are they so afraid of people being able to just openly and freely talk about stuff? That's a good question. I think the I think the answer is that they know they know that if that if they can control the discourse and they prevent people from sharing wrong think and information, then they'll be able to maintain control. I think I that. Think- I think they are afraid of open discourse because, well, honestly, if you're afraid of open discourse, it's because it, that's to your detriment. If people honestly and freely discuss things, they're going to come to conclusions that these people don't want. I, I believe that it is a very, and we kind of don't, don't think about this as much as maybe we should, but I believe that the left and the kind of establishment openly blames social media and the lack of social media control and moderation for 2016. Definitely. And there wasn't a bunch of disinformation in 2016. I mean, aside from, you know, 
Hillary Clinton's claims that the election was stolen by Russia. But the reality was, is people were able to see things openly. They, they had not expected a large social media presence on the right. And then when it happened, they didn't have a way of dealing with it. And then Donald Trump won the presidency. And there was a collective conniption fit on the left. And of course, that's when you started seeing all this trust and safety and all this other crazy stuff talks about, quote, disinformation, misinformation, and this need for media control. Right. A lot of it goes back to the WikiLeaks releases of the Hillary Clinton emails, where it was became obvious that she had a illegal server with classified information in her home, that they were deleting records, that they were operating this pay-for-play scheme through the Clinton Foundation. There was serious, real corruption going on in the Obama White House and with the Obama administration. And then when that got revealed, they then blamed the open and free sharing of information for the reason why they lost. If we didn't have all this open, free sharing of information, if the, quote, experts could gatekeep all of this information and prevent the release of information that Democrats would find politically damaging, then they would be able to win elections. And if people are able to freely share information, then their corruption is, then they now have to worry about their corruption coming to light and that will cause them to lose power. That's where I, I think mean, a lot of this stems from is simply if, if we did, if all these people weren't allowed, if we could have control over the flow of information, then they won't be able to know about our corruption and then we'll win. Yeah, I think it's I think it's honestly as simple as that. And and the, the craziest part about it is how absolutely obvious they're making it that that is the point, that that is why they're so scared. That's why they're so terrified. Yeah. Now, yeah. another another weird news story that I just cannot get over um, before we, we dive into the fun Halloween aspects, aspects of this is, uh, the Paul Pelosi oh, yeah. craziness. I mean, all right, I'm going to give you guys the timeline of me finding out about this story and then like diving into this story. The minute that I saw that, first of all, when I became aware of the story, it had already been being suppressed. Mm. And the reason why I say that is I was seeing reactions to the story and people talking about a Pelosi attack. Yeah. But I couldn't find, like not as easily as you would like to think, I couldn't find news stories really talking about it at that time. Mm. And it wasn't that far after the story had come out. And that's a very strange... It, it's a very strange instance where I see a lot of people discussing something, but I'm not seeing the thing itself. Well, sure. that was because the story came out where they were like, hey, Paul Pelosi had some random guy in his underwear, you know, break into, you know, break into their mansion in San Francisco, and he was assaulted with a hammer. And it was post the police giving their statement wherever where they explained it as we were doing a well check on Mr. Pelosi. And when we came in, we found him and this other guy struggling over a hammer. And then he was assaulted. And much like everyone else, everybody went, that's weird and makes zero sense. When I first saw a Pelosi attack, because mm -hmm. that was all I had seen. I hadn't seen the particulars of it. 
I looked at the date and immediately went, no, no, this is the exact time that DC consultants say that you need to release your October surprise to try to swing the elections. And suddenly out of nowhere, there was what they're going to claim is right wing violence against Nancy Pelosi. I don't buy it. Right. But then it didn't stop there because if mm-hmm. it, if it had stopped there and said, well, and then we come to learn, oh, this guy was an Oath Keeper and he had, flew a Gadsden flag and was wearing a MAGA hat at the time and yelling, this, this is, is MAGA, MAGA country. country. Yeah. Yeah. If, we, if that had happened, I would have become more suspicious. But then the opposite happened and the story just kept getting weirder and weirder. Like, why was he in his underwear? Why was he at the guy's house? A In multiple reports, a unidentified third person opened the door for the police right. well, wait who was the third person who else was there at the house why was this guy here it keeps getting stranger and stranger they were fighting over a hammer but the fight really only began once the police showed up it's very weird it's it's weird and suspicious and i think there's no i think something real untoward was going on there and uh then it something got out of hand and they called the police well and then there was okay well the other thing was the it came out that john mr pelosi had called the police and spoken in code words to the 911 operator to get the police to show up and then he has to go to the hospital only because after the police show up he, this guy attacks him with the hammer mm-hmm. well were they and, trying and to he, do some sort of like i don't know elite reptilian like blood sacrifice of some drugged up homeless guy and that you know got out of hand and the guy fought his way out and then he's had to discreetly call the police and say listen we got one that's uh that's getting away can you send a car one one of Paul's boys got loose. Yeah, I mean, what what level of degeneracy would actually surprise you to find out about some of these people? So, well, and one of the weirder parts is apparently when when Paul Pelosi called the police, which it took a while for that to suddenly because because that's the whole thing is a lot of people started asking like why did the police show up? They said that they were there for a well check. Oh yeah, wellness check. And but now all of a sudden it's like, oh no, it's it's because Paul Pelosi called, right? The um, called like the police. He called, like somebody called the police. Well, they're, they're saying they showed they're up. Saying that they're saying they're saying now that Paul Pelosi called the police from his from his bathroom and told them he doesn't know the guy, but his name's David and he's a friend. That's yeah. the new line of this, which still doesn't make any sense. It, it's like they can't get control. It's like the narrative is super weird and they can't get control of it. And so they just keep inundating us with weird business. Now, well, I got to think no, it, back it absolutely to- seems like they're trying that because the story has shifted multiple times, it leads. It feels like basically something unplanned happened. And now they're trying to have to deal with the fallout of that in some way that hopefully is going to try and make some sense it's like you know he has it he has some dude there to have a bunch of gay sex with on the down low they get in an argument over drugs 
like how much like to pay for each other for drugs. That argument escalates. He then calls the cops. The guy is like, well, the shit, the cops are here. I'm going to like fight my way out of this. Now, instead of being able to handle this discreetly, well, they have to go to the hospital. And now there's a paper record. And now we need to justify, well, why were the police there? Where did these wounds come from? And everyone's now orbiting around, how do we play this off when not admit what was actually going on? Well, and, and as you said, there's supposedly a, a mysterious unknown third person. But at the same time, I think back to when Paul Pelosi got his DUI. Mm-hmm. There were reports early on that he had a young man in the car and that had all but disappeared from the media narrative. Yeah. Now, could it have disappeared because it was mistaken? Perhaps. But could it also di- disappear because people were asking too many questions? Yes. Now, I'm not saying necessarily that Nancy Pelosi hired a guy to go after her husband so she could sit there and claim victim and try to swing votes. But what I am saying is I don't think that that's below her. Certainly. But the timing, the timing, I mean, the timing is certainly suspect. And that's the hard part I can't get around is the timing is really suspect because of it lining up so close to the midterms. And all of that, this is about the time an October surprise happens. And of course, it's being capitalized on because all of these liberals are now saying, I can't believe Republicans are still running mean attack ads about Democrats after Paul Pelosi was attacked by a by a gay nudist who came in in his underwear and had a hammer, but didn't actually break in because, of course, an alarm would have gone off and the police would have responded to that, but they didn't. And there was all all of this nonsense. The point is, is something very weird happened. And because the left is so arrogant and has had so much control over the narrative, they're losing their damn mind. And to make it even better, to make it even better, Hillary Clinton came out of her gross, weird wandering in the woods and drinking wine and had to state about Republican violence. And Elon Musk was like, well, there's at least a little bit to question here. And he shared a uh, an article that was somebody saying exactly what Alan is arriving at. Like, yeah, this is around the time that gay bars let out And, well, there's a lot of rumors that go on in San Francisco about Paul Pelosi having a penchant for picking up gay guys at bar, like getting drunk, picking up dudes at bars, and bringing them back to his mansion. Because, well, that was what was going on in his DUI, that's what's going on here, and everyone's just trying to hide it. That does seem reasonable. I don't know if that's true or not, but the idea that they, that some of these DC elites like the Pelosi's with a, all this wealth are not into some like weird degenerate nonsense that eventually kind of comes to light and they have to run damage control for. Well, I mean, we saw the whole Epstein scandal. It's like, well, we know and- that there, there, we know he had an island where he was trading sex with underage children, with underage, you know, I guess women and boys. We don't really know, but he was basically trading sex for influence with all these powerful people. Mm-hmm. All of these other billionaires are visiting his like gross little sex island. So we know at least that's possible. 
So who knows what the Pelosi's were up to, but if it was something similar, I wouldn't be surprised. Well, that and the left's reaction to QAnon, which is, I don't want to say it's benign, but the premise of it is the elites in America are into really gross, weird crap with kids. Yep. And them saying that that was the most threatening conspiracy theory ever. Mm -hmm. And you're like, wait, but like why? It's kind of benign and not that like... All these people ever do is just talk about human trafficking and how like weird rich people are trying to abduct kids. Like that's not really, that's not really that bad of a conspiracy theory. And ultimately like if it helps people not traffic and children, that's an ultimate good. Is it not? And their reaction is no, we have to shut it down and silence it. And it's like, Oh, it's Oh God. It's because it's true. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I think you combine those two things and well, and I, I think, mm -hmm. I think Paul Pelosi's into some weird stuff and, uh, it's fun. It's fun watching this narrative collapse. Um, and it's also fun watching the left basically, uh, use this as an excuse. Like, see, this is why we can't let Elon Musk own Twitter because then we mm -hmm. can't convince people that there isn't a recession and Paul Pelosi doesn't bring like cracked out homeless guys home for weird sex parties and for some reason has a hammer present. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All real right. weird. Any other, any other news stories before we kick off and get into the fun part of the show? Oh, nah, nah. <laughs> All right. Well, then, then we will get into the Halloween part. So, Tomorrow is Halloween. It is the celebration of Samhain. And the idea behind Halloween is it is the time that the veil between the living and the dead is at its thinnest. Mm -hmm. This is a time that cultures back, back in time would leave offerings for their ancestors. They would go visit. It's all Souls Day. And the idea is that the dead walk the earth. This is something that has gone back thousands of years and we celebrate it now by having our children dress up and they go out and they get candy and they do this. It's a great holiday. It's my favorite holiday and I hate to say it. I almost feel like it's dying. You don't see trick-or-treaters as much anymore and that I just think it's sad. I love mm -hmm. the fall. I love this holiday and so we really wanted to do a show to highlight the fun and scary parts of Halloween. And one of the ways that we did it was we asked people to share their ghost stories. And of course, we're going to sit around the campfire and we're going to share some of these ghost stories. And let's start it off with one that came from a listener. This was given to us by Katie. And it's titled The Stanley Hotel. For those of you who don't know, the Stanley Hotel is a hotel in Colorado. It was built by the guy who started Stanley Steamer. And, th and in this hotel, which has this very long haunted history, in room 217 is where Stephen King stayed. And that is where he wrote The Shining based off the weird stuff around the Stanley Hotel. So, 
Now you have the picture painted. This is Katie's story. I grew up in a small town in Colorado, which is about a 30-minute drive from the Stanley Hotel. I grew up watching The Shining, so I always had an affinity for the place. I turned 16 in the late 90s, so when we got bored, we would drive up to the Stanley and walk around. At that time, the Stanley was known, but not as popular as it is today. In addition, the locks on the doors were old, so in the winter months, most of the room doors were left unlocked and you could simply walk into the rooms. There was one time me and my friends went to walk around and ghost hunt in the off-season. We found room 217, and the door was unlocked, so we went inside and there were two beds. We proceeded to jump on the beds, scream like 16-year-olds about the alarm that was flashing at 12, and then run run out of the room. We left the door open a crack as we were running out of there. I said, oh, we forgot to shut the door, and turned back to shut the door, and the door slammed shut. We ran down the hall, screaming like teenagers. After that, we ran into a hotel employee who was also bored and asked us if we wanted to go ghost hunting with him. Indeed, we did. So we went around the grounds. We went into every building looking for ghosts. He took us to the manor house, now known as the lodge, and told us the story about how a famous musician had stayed in the suite down the hallway. The bellman was invited to party with them one evening, and the next day, the bellman was found deceased. When we went, then we went into the basement of the concert hall and checked out the Stanley steamer in the stables. Unfortunately, we didn't find any ghosts that evening. Fast forward a few years, I was hired at the Stanley as a waitress, my first waitressing job. I was not a good waitress at the time. I worked the morning shift and started at 6.30 a.m. Needless to say, there was a lot of standing around. One morning, I was standing by the waiting station, and someone tapped me on the shoulder and said, Excuse me. I could feel their hot breath on my ear, so I moved over, and no one walked by me. I looked down the hall to the kitchen, I looked around the dining room, and no one was there. I had just witnessed a ghost. I had to leave my position at the Stanley because I went to school a few hours away, but I came back winter break for the holidays. Then I was fired New Year's for drinking on the job. Eight of us were fired that day. I started dating one of the waiters there. I went to pick him up one night, but had been spectacularly fired, so I couldn't show my face in the dining room. So I went to the manor house to wait for him in the room by the suites where the bellboy was found. There was a little nook that I sat in. The room was dark except for the light from the hallway. I was sitting there about 10 minutes when I heard a door open down the hall. Then someone started walking down the hall. I was worried. I was sitting in a dark room in a little nook at the Stanley Hotel. I was not supposed to be there. Then another door opened and the footsteps stopped. Close call. About 10 minutes later, a door opened and footsteps started walking down the hall. I'm done for now. They're going to find me. Then a, door, then a door opened, and the footsteps stopped. 
Then it happened again. The hall isn't that long. The footsteps aren't getting any closer. Is it housekeeping? I can't jump out and check. I would scare someone to death. I'm not supposed to be there. I'm hiding in the manor house. Then the guy I was dating finally showed up. I looked down the hall, expecting to see the housekeeping cart, but there was nothing there. All right. Is that scary? Spooky. <laughs> Is that spooky? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So what, what what's going on? Ghosts. What are they? Are they reflections of the past? Like a movie that plays? Are they the souls of the previously living, wandering for some reason, unable to move on to something higher, you know, trapped forever for some reason on this plane or having unfinished business? Or do people have thousands of stories just like the one Katie shared, but they're all mistaken? It can all just be explained away. It's the wind. It's the electrical. It's an old house that makes creepy, creaky noises. What could mm. it be? Can thousands of people, cultures that go all the way back to pre-written history, believing the idea that the dead can walk the earth, is that so easily explained away as just all of these people are wrong, all of them are mistaken, it's completely impossible. I just can't buy that thousands of people every single year could just be simply mistaken. Exactly. There's there's too many stories for there to be nothing, for there to be no explanation at all. For it to just be, ah, uh, everybody's making it up. Yeah. I think it's the same with UFOs and a lot of these things. Is there's too many stories that share too many similarities for all of them to just be hoaxes. So there's something going on. It's like maybe it's not aliens, maybe it's not ghosts, but there's some something going on that is that does not have a good explanation currently for a lot of these things. And I think that's that's at least where I get interested in it. It's like there's is the recognition that there is absolutely something beyond our understanding about these phenomenon. And acknowledging that that's that that is the case. I think a lot of people wave it away and say, "Well, there's no ghosts, there's no aliens, there's no paranormal." And I think that is just simply not true. There is clearly some phenomenon out there we don't explain. We that is un- we can't account for, and ignoring it, ignoring the possibility of it, which seems provable, provable that there's something, just seems like you're more running away from the explanation than not answering than answering it. Just I would rather not look into that. I'd rather not know. I'd rather not investigate that if there's something paranormal or not. I'd rather just stay comfortable knowing that there's only the material world and nothing beyond it. Well, and here's, I mean, here's a story 
that I want. I know how people might be able to explain it away, but I I don't think it's it's so simple. This is this is a story called The Little Hands. This is purportedly a true ghost story. I've never lived in a haunted house, but my mother did as a teen. Other houses on her street had strange things going on too. A few homes away from her lived a family. One night, the daughter went to bed with a bad headache. The next day, she was dead. She'd passed away from an aneurysm. After her funeral, the family went away to get their minds off the tragedy, and the father asked my uncle, my mom's brother, to check on their pets. My mom and dad, who were dating at the time, went with him. My mother had heard there was a grand piano, and she wanted to play it. My dad was studying to be a veterinarian. After entering the house, my uncle and my father headed to the basement to see the animals, and my mother went to the piano on the ground floor. She was playing it when she felt something brush her ankles. She thought a cat must have left the basement and walked past her. She kept playing, and then she felt it again. She looked under the piano and saw nothing. When she started again, she felt hands clasp her legs tightly. She dashed to the basement door, called my uncle and father, and waited for them. Back outside, my uncle could tell my mom was rattled and asked what was wrong. She told him what had happened, and he turned white. He told her the daughter who had died used to play a game with her father. When he played the piano, she'd crawl underneath, grab his ankles, and push his feet up and down on the pedals. Hmm. Hmm. Real? Maybe? Maybe not? I mean, why lie about it, I guess? Certainly. But, but at the okay, same so time. Okay, so both of these stories, let's just say they're true. Mm-hmm. Clearly, that implies that the, that not only would say, let's say a ghost exists in these stories, but it, what would it mean? It would mean that ghosts are able to physically interact with things in the world beyond just making people feel spooked out that they can touch you they can move things mm-hmm. which i think set which says something about their capabilities okay if they can touch and move things it means that ghosts exist in a way they can exert force in the physical world sure right so i think that kind of maybe expels okay well then what could ghosts be well, they have to be something that is able to exert force. It can't just be totally ethereal. I don't know. But not every ghost exerts force. It seems like... Because there's plenty There's plenty of, of stories where people see things that almost look like a replay. Sure. I think... Yeah. I think I've heard a number but, of these things happening at, say, Civil War battlefields, where they'll I was see just a ghostly a procession battle. of Confederate or Union soldiers. Yeah, almost like it's a replay of replay of of, a, of an experience, a traumatic experience. Now, according to Colleen, 
in the chat, when my house was on fire, my sister followed someone up the stairs to get out. She thought it was me, but I was still in the basement. Hmm. And remember, people, this is the other the other thing, you know, uh, growing up when you're a kid, you always hear about guardian angels, right? And sure. other cultures always talk about like their ancestors coming to help them, to guide them, to aid them. This idea that that the that the the dead can interact with us, help us and 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 take care of us, you know, beyond the grave as it were. Sure. So you have an experience where a house is on fire and somebody helps helps lead you out of the home away from danger but it's not it's not anyone but somebody sees a human being that leads them out how do you make that mistake how hmm. can that be mistaken how can you be mistaken to see a human form that just so happens to lead you away from danger when you likely didn't know that there was even danger occurring. And this has happened a lot. There's a lot of instances and stories where not just the idea of people being led away from danger, but when people lose loved ones and they see them, someone's laying in bed and their grandfather or a parent sits on the edge of the bed, has an entire conversation with them, and as soon as that conversation is over and that person disappears and the, the, the person laying in bed is sitting there in absolute bewilderment, they get the phone call and they find out that that person had died mm -hmm. just then. You can chalk things up to being a mistake, but how the hell do you mistake seeing someone at the exact moment that they pass away. Yeah. You don't know well, that there's that also happened. many. Yeah. There's also many, many stories about people will be thinking of thinking of someone and then we'll immediately, and then we'll get a phone call from them. There is actually a study done on whether simply thinking about a person would cause them to essentially think about you and give you a phone call. And they found that, greater a greater chance than probability would suggest that when they had a number of test subjects and said okay just throughout the day think about someone that you're familiar with a family member a good friend think about that person all day and then see if they contact you and what they found is it wasn't of course every time it wasn't it was it was a small percentage of the time this worked and these people would get a phone call from a loved one but the notable thing about the experiment was they said, well, yeah, it's in a relatively small number of cases, this seems to work. However, that number is statistically significant beyond probability. If it was just a random chance that's, that someone would call one of these people, that would be, and forgive me for not knowing the probabilities that I don't have, that would be you know, a certain random probability. However, a statistically significant number beyond that was how likely this this happened in this experiment so well, and they, I, what does that mean i feels like there at it's all of this hints at the at, at the idea that there is some 
paranormal dimension to reality that absolutely exists underneath it. A way for us to some connection. Yeah. Some method or mode that that we are able to connect that that we can't physically see touch or or quantify is kind of what you're saying yeah and so what do you think like what is that connection is that is that the soul i think that that is intimately connected with what's going on you think the soul is intimately mm -hmm. connected? Yeah, the soul, conscious thought, however you want to describe it, there is some aspect to that that is intimately related with the paranormal, systems of magic, all of these things. And I think there is, it all refers to some, some set of rules or parameters, system, dimension, underlying reality, intimately connected to it, but accessed and access through the realm of either thought or the soul or spirituality uh, in magical in certain magical systems this is referred to as the tunnels of set i believe like alistair crowley i think meant, referred to it like that that there is this set of hyper reality that exists that allow that we access through the soul or consciousness that then can manifest on the material plane so it's, it's, the idea is, where do flashes of inspiration come from? Where does creativity come from? Where do these things that we ascribe to consciousness actually come from? And I think there is certainly some certain, a lot of systems that describe it as, well, there's this realm of consciousness and spirituality, and it interacts with the material plane through essentially conscious thought. That if you come up with an idea, invent something, that is a way for the, essentially the paranormal in this alternate dimension to manifest itself physically in our world. So does that equate to the ability, if it can manifest itself, mm -hmm. and you know, people believe in a beyond, why only, is it, is it that only certain people experience ghosts or is it that only certain souls remain here or some other explanation of it being a rare occurrence a difficult occurrence for one reason or another to pierce that veil and so why is that veil pierced as it were in mm -hmm. only certain times with certain people i mean i personally i've never seen a ghost yeah. I tried. I was in Gettysburg just a couple of weeks ago. And I, I mean, I didn't like go completely out of my way, but I fully believe in them. I've done a ghost hunt. I haven't done several. I'd love to do several, but I, I, I have no reason not to believe that ghosts exist. And I've heard enough stories from people that I believe are being honest and don't see any reason why they would be dishonest, but I personally have never seen one. I've heard sure. weird things. I don't know if I can attribute that to ghosts. I've had stories of family members, some that are particularly very upsetting and scary, of them 
experiencing literally talking, not even to people they recognize. Sure. I mean, I don't know if he's going to have a problem with me sharing this, but my father has been visited a couple of times at least by someone who sits on the edge of his bed, but he doesn't know who they are. Ooh. And they don't talk to him, but they're there and they don't seem to be malicious. What the hell is that? It's he tells me about this and it scares the hell out of me. But what is it? Certainly weird. Yeah. And, and I don't, I don't think he's making it up. He sees this, what, whatever this is. You know, and, and people want to explain it was, ah, you were just having a dream. But we've all had, my father has had 80 years of dreams. By this point, I think he can differentiate. Sure. Sure. <laughs> you know, and, and like I said, I've only had weird stuff. I've never seen an apparition. I, I don't know how I would react. My hope is, is that I would be like calm and, and rational and be like, okay, this is happening. And not just like wet myself and pass out or you know, something weird like that. But I mean, when I was at Gettysburg, I, I, I wanted to see something and maybe that was part of the problem, right? It always kind of mm-hmm. feels like, unless, unless these people are like ghost hunters that have been doing this for a while, it almost feels like if you really want to, it's not going to happen. And maybe it's because you need to see it out of the corner of your eye. Sure. Uh, easily. It easily could be, but it's, well, in the, this, there's numerous stories of someone visiting from beyond, which essentially is you're interacting with something, some intelligence or consciousness that from beyond the material plane. Now, maybe in a lot of cases, like say your father, that something is seeking him out to communicate with him. But there's also plenty of other stories of people doing the opposite. I mean, a lot of the... A lot of things like, you know, wizards and magical stuff. Like again, we bring come back to Aleister Crowley, who's just one of the more famous, I guess, magical theologians in modern time. Uh, one of the primary things he said he was trying to do was communicate with some intelligence from beyond. Mm-hmm. And there's numerous occultist occultist groups, and that where that is their absolute intention is communing with these intelligences from beyond the material plane now is that what ghosts are but just uh, it's sort of a natural phenomenon and then when these you know occultists get in touch with demons or whatever that's a they're it's going the other direction they're trying to make this happen and reaching out whereas ghosts maybe are just whatever can reach through the veil to us naturally i don't know I mean, you had even very famous people, Nikola Tesla, Edison. This was yeah. like the intention of some of you know some of the inventions that we use on a daily basis. Their intention was to communicate with the dead. Right, right. And so I guess. Again, I, I can't dismiss this. If there are people trying to do this and saying that they have success communicating with these extra dimensional intelligences, and we have ghosts that are seemingly doing the same thing, 
it feels like all of that is connected and somehow not to be completely dismissed. The underlying idea that there is this sort of paranormal dimension out there that is connected with our world and there are intelligences within it that can be communicated with, should you show, so choose, it makes me wonder how much of that's real, if there's any of it. But I wonder what, it, it seems like too much hints at that for me to discount the possibility entirely. I think that it is a massive mistake for us to think that we know everything about the universe that surrounds us. Mm -hmm. And I think it is arrogant and not to get too much on the inside baseball, but I think it's poor analysis to simply just dismiss away the idea that there's things greater and unquantifiable and unseen in a universe as vast as what as the one in which we live mm -hmm. i think that that's arrogant and it makes you incapable of properly viewing almost anything certainly which is well you know this because of the conversations you and i have to have when we prep for the show it's one of the most infuriating things to see people just go, no, it's just not true. It just, that just didn't happen. And it's like, exactly. but, but we have all of these accounts. In fact, mm -hmm. um, we'll, we'll, we'll slide past ghosts for a second. Sure. Uh, because we can always go back to ghosts. Who says no to that? But let's, let's talk about, you know, so, so that's something on the ground, but let's talk about something in the air. And of course, what I'm talking about is UFOs. Sure. Aliens. Yeah. And I'll get into my my infuriated story about aliens um, <laughs> in a second. But this is actually a recent article uh, um, from today. And it is from the New York Post. Several recent UFO sightings reported by pilots over the Pacific Ocean. Numerous sightings of unidentified flying objects have been reported by dozens of pilots flying across the Pacific Ocean over the last two months, according to a UFO researcher. Ben Hansen, a former FBI agent, the host of, Discover of the Discovery show UFO Witness, obtained new footage and air traffic control recordings that reveal baffled pilots struggling to describe their bizarre mid-air sightings. Sure. He compiled accounts of pilots from Southwest Airlines, Hawaiian Airlines, and others between August 6th and September 23rd. In one captivating account, a former military pilot reported seeing multiple aircraft flying above him. Quote, we've got a few aircraft to our north here, and he's going around in circles, much, much higher altitude than us. Any idea what they are? Pilot Mark Hulsey radioed in on August 18th while flying a charter jet off the Los Angeles coast. The confused controller responds, telling the pilot that he was not sure. Halsey called back 23 minutes later to say that the three aircraft had originally, he had originally reported had increased to seven, flying between 5,000 and 10,000 feet above him. They, they just keep going in circles. 
I was an F-18 pilot in the Marine Corps, and I'm telling you, I've done many intercepts. I've never seen anything like this, Holsey says in the recording. According to Hansen, the strange lights that some pilots reported as possible aircraft were seen by upwards of 15 different commercial flights, and at least six pilots are willing to go on record with their names and everything if asked to do so by investigative agencies. Now, 15 different pilots see this in a large swath. And uh, we don't need to go down the entire story because it is kind of long, but several people saw it. And the most interesting part was they all saw it from the same location, which means it was far away, perhaps outside of the Earth's orbit, because it was all being reported as being kind of down and to the left of the tail of the Big Dipper. But it is these are objects that are almost circling in a racetrack. Hmm. Like okay. a racetrack pattern. And so satellites don't really do that. Satellites usually sit in a geosynchronous orbit or a non-geosynchronous orbit, but they kind of maintain a steady, uh, you know, a, a steady course and you watch them streak across the sky. Also remember, pilots see satellites all the time. They're up there in the air. They're away from... Sure. Uh, light pollution. So they, they see a pretty pure night sky. Yeah. So these are something. It's certainly, it is something. People all saw it. And whether or not you want to talk about like the Phoenix lights or or any of these other instances where people look out their window and, and everyone in this in a town reports seeing lights in the sky, objects moving, all of this, they're seeing something. It's not nothing. You can't just say it's nothing. Because too many people are seeing it. But it feels like so many people want to just dismiss it and say, they're all mistaken. It was, I don't know, swamp gas or it's all military aircraft, Mm -hmm. which I don't think the military is so dumb as to make themselves purely obvious, (laughs) you know, like, hey, let's go test this uh, experimental aircraft over a giant populated city. Yeah. I mean, unless that unless the I mean, I could see the the possibility for that. It's like, well, yeah. let's reveal this in just enough of a way that if we have other sightings, like say we have somebody actually see this thing, we can play that off as, wow, ah, they're just a crazy UFO conspiracy theorist. It's oh, a really convenient ex- this way. This is your X-Files theorem. Right, this is my X-Files theory, which is everything on the X-Files was true or at least Something on the X Files was absolutely true and real, and the X Files was a cover so that if anybody ever actually discovered what it was or had found, said, you know, went public with some proof or leaked it, then the government would have the out of saying, "Oh, this guy just saw that on the TV box. He's just he's just a crazy dude that watches too much TV." We absolutely do not have some sort of weird alien autopsy that we did at Roswell. He just watched too much X Files. See, that was an episode right here. Episode, you know, season two, episode four. That was where they covered this, and he just saw it on TV. I think that if I was trying to cover up something fantastic, and I knew that I couldn't keep it totally a secret, I would at least consider doing exactly that. Is basically just telling people in a farcical manner. So if anybody ever actually comes 
leaks it, you could just say, oh, no, they just uh, they just watched that silly movie. And they just watch it. Yeah, <laughs> they just all oh, these people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, it's funny because, you know, this year, 2022, Congress passed legislation in the Na- in the National Defense Authorization Act. That stood up the ability to make it easier for pilots to report unidentified flying objects. Mm-hmm. So farcical or not, the United States Congress, for one reason or another, not only did we see the leaked footage of aircraft picking up objects flying, and it was acknowledged by the military that it occurred. Yeah. But then for some reason in the National Defense Authorization Act of 2022, they wanted to make it easier to report these types of findings. Sure. Which, and to be fair, made me more skeptical. Absolutely. <laughs> like, wait a minute, the government's kind of acknowledging the existence of UFOs? Well, what the hell are they trying to distract us from? They've always kept that one in their back pocket. Exactly. And that's what makes me skeptical of some of this paranormal stuff is is it real? Is it not real? How much of it is, well, it is essentially, it's a really, I have to look at it and I, you have to admit, if you were trying to cover something up, calling it paranormal or ascribing it to something paranormal, absolutely would be a great way to do it. But additionally, if you were doing something, if say all this paranormal stuff is real and you did have a program that a government program investigating these things, you absolutely would have ways to try and keep it hidden to keep it secret. Uh, the movie, the men who stare at goats is a really good example of this because there were, oh, it was yes. a real military and intelligence community effort to investigate psychic phenomena. Most notably and supposedly the most success they had was with something called remote viewing where someone can sit in a room in a trance state and project their mind out and see things that they shouldn't be able to see or see things in an area that is miles, miles away. Supposedly, this was very successful. And I have, if I was to make some sort of movie about this, well, men who stare at ghosts certainly would be one. But I would, I would look at it and say, how much of the American spy satellite program was a cover for the more classified remote viewing program? I think that certainly is in the realm of possibility that if you did have people that could hone the skills to do this sort of psychic remote viewing of other spots on the on the earth, you would need a cover story for it. And in this instance, instead of the cover story for your, say, secret stealth bomber being a UFO, your cover story for psychic spies would be something like spy satellites. It's like think of early American spy satellites like the Corona program supposedly those worked by they took a bunch of pictures as they flew around the earth and then when they and then everyone's well how do you get the pictures back to earth so and said well it uh it fills up the film canister and then jettisons the film that then rockets back to earth and lands somewhere in the nevada desert and then we go pick it up now is that real probably but at the same time that sounds just weird enough to think that someone came up with that as a way to disguise a more secret remote viewing program. I, I no. get suspicious of 
here's here's an example. Again, I can't prove any of this. It's just a suspicion that I quietly have and wonder about. There is something called, uh, what is it? I think it's LIDAR. So it's like laser laser radar, supposedly. And they did this big project where it's like, yeah, we have these LIDAR planes and they're flying over the jungles of South America. Ooh. And they're shooting lasers down and it's beamy beaming and bouncing back. Oh, whoop, isn't that fancy? And oh, suddenly we found there's an entire Mayan or Mayan Aztec native. There's an entire city structure we found in the middle of it. I think it's the Bolivian rainforest where there's all of, there's these pyramids, there's roads, there's an entire essentially lost civilization, whether it's Mayan cities or something. It's some, it looks like the Mayan cities in, uh, Aztec cities in Mexico is what it looks like. And it's like, here's this grainy image we compiled with LIDAR imaging of all of this, these sites that are buried under the forest canopy. Is that LIDAR imaging? Probably. I've, I don't know. Can't refute that. Maybe LIDAR is totally real. But at the same time, how do the lasers shining down on the leaves of plants in this overgrown jungle show you there's a city there? Is it? I, I at least kind of wonder if all this remote viewing stuff is real, like all of these leakers and documentation says it was. If you had some guy remote viewing into Mexico and the sort of psychic signature of an actual civilization drew his attention, he's like, hey, there's a city down here. How would you release that to the public? Well, you'd say, uh, we have a magical plane with magical technology that just sees this stuff through the trees. So um, there it is. Someone should go investigate that. I don't know. Now, interesting. So what, you, what, what you're talking about here is what, what is known mm -hmm. as the Stargate Project. Yes. And the Stargate project was remote was remote viewing, and it was acknowledged and declassified in 1995, when the CIA. But the CIA said it was unreliable and yes. didn't work. Which maybe it was unreliable and didn't work, but if it did work, I would have expected them to say the exact same thing. Well, 1995 is a very interesting time. Mm -hmm. Because the Stargate project was funded under the idea of the Cold War. Right. Because Russia also was investigating the use of psychics as part of modern warfare. Mm -hmm. But then the Cold War was over. Right. Well, that's when it was terminated. The, the Stargate project was initially in, I believe, the 70s? Correct. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's it started up in 1995 is when they declassified it. Right. And I don't know. I don't, I don't trust that the CIA gets rid of anything that could possibly bear fruit. Sure. But around 1995, that fits pretty well with your X-Files theory. Right. You can just openly say, ah, yeah, you know, well, that and and I'll, I'll get into because we're talking about aliens and things like this. Uh, it was also the peak of the time that talk radio dominated the airwaves once again. Mm -hmm. And yes, politically, we always talk about Rush Limbaugh, you know, and, and that was something that scared the hell out of politicians because 
someone like Rush Limbaugh is out there telling people stuff that's outside of the mainstream media and how dare he. But there was another host who came as a package deal with Rush Limbaugh. And that was a gentleman named Art Bell. Mm -hmm. And that, a program like what he, he did talking about the paranormal and UFOs and strange science and things like that was dominant in the mid nineties. And it's what led to the fandom of things like the X-Files. It's what's led actually to the content that we see these days with um, ghost stories and, and ghost hunters and, and all of these other shows. This was, you didn't hear stuff. I mean, you heard ghost stories, sure. And people would talk about it, but this was like, massive media, late night radio, you could turn it on. And there's a guy sitting behind a microphone and he's talking about aliens and Bigfoot and, and ghosts and what the hell. And yeah. it was popular and people wanted to hear it and people were believing it. And this scared the hell out of a lot. And, and, and I, I don't just mean when we talk about cryptids or whatever, this scared government Agencies were terrified over the idea of common people being able to hear or talk about these things. They covered the idea of they 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 covered their concern with if people start having these crazy ideas, then they'll do something stupid. It's the same thing we see with conspiracies today. Yeah. We can't have people talking about conspiracies because then somebody might be violent about it. Right, same. Well, remember the whole Pizzagate thing, where <coughs> is it where people said, "No, hey, there's these really bizarre email and text exchanges between people like John Podesta and Obama and all these officials that are absolutely using code words related to pizza." That if you le read the e emails and texts they were sending each other, you have to look at it and go they absolutely are talking about something that is not pizza and they are using coded language to describe mm -hmm. it and we had it we've had a forensic analyst right into the show somebody who does mm -hmm. uh, forensic analysis of of internet communications and computer hard drives flat out say that while working on a child sex crimes task force cp or cheese or cheese pizza was a code for child porn okay that has I mean, absolutely been used as code. Yeah. So anyway, sorry, go on. Right. No, no. I, so they absolutely were talking in code about something they didn't want other people, even in their own circles, to know what was going on. They were They clearly were hiding something. And then there's the, I think it was, I forget, like the pizza shop that the guy, a guy walked into with a gun. And then suddenly all discussion of Pizzagate, all discussion of, hey, what the hell were they actually talking about? What were the secrets they were trying to hide? Suddenly all of that has to go away. And no one can talk about it because, oh, it was so dangerous. This guy walked in with a gun. You know, Alex Jones is going to get somebody killed talking about these crazy conspiracies. Right. That sort of thing makes me suspicious because there absolutely is a basis to some of this stuff. And then the... It's almost like there's absolutely a very real basis. And when people notice that and start asking questions about it, suddenly there's either some event or something happens and it becomes danger and it becomes dangerous for people to trade in these ideas because they might hurt somebody because they're crazy. 
for example, nearby to that pizza parlor where the guy walked in with a gun, there's an art gallery that is owned and financed by John Podesta that never opens its doors. It is a private, quote, art gallery where they have private art auctions. I mean, maybe that's just a bunch of rich, wealthy elite people bidding on stupid postmodern art. But at the same time, would an art auction be a very convenient cover story for auctioning any other number of unseemly things? Or even just money laundering. In or fact, just it's straight so money laundering. I think the it's vast just... majority of the art world is provably money laundering. Like, it, that this is person so much... pays an artist $50,000 to make a piece of art, then auctions it off to another one of his rich friends for 10 million and everybody then and then sell and then donates it to a gallery for a 10 million dollar tax break yeah yeah but anyway <laughs> but at the same time let's say let's say it was simply something as dumb as and simple as money laundering that was happening behind the scenes at pizzagate because that that one guy wandered into this pizza parlor with a gun now nobody gets to talk about what actually was going on with the Obama administration, John Podesta, and all this coded language. Like even right. if it was just simply, you know, criminal money laundering, they squashed all investigation into it by saying, oh, these dangerous conspiracy theorists. And it's the same thing with UFOs and a lot of this other stuff, is that it gets painted as the people that believe in these things are dangerous fringe lunatics that we have to push out of society. And if you're a smart, sensible person, you'll reject all of this out of hand with absolutely zero investigation. And right. the fact that that is the official line that gets pushed by, you know, the powers that be through all these different outlets, that the culturally acceptable thing to do, the socially acceptable thing is to pay no attention, to dismiss all of these ideas completely from the get-go with absolutely no skepticism at all, with or with complete skepticism, with no acknowledgement. That seems weird based on the amount of actual real evidence we have. We've talked about this multiple times before. When you bring up a conspiracy theory, or any, any of these things, people get weird in a way that doesn't make sense. Like I was recently on a camp out with some people and the subject of UFOs came up and I'm, like three out of the five of us were, you know, into it. Maybe, and it's like, ah, maybe, I don't know. Like, have you seen anything? Well, maybe. And then one guy was just like, nope, nope, aliens don't exist. Nope, it's dumb. Aliens don't exist. It's so dumb. It's, and he just kept repeating, I just, I don't know. It's just so dumb. Like aliens, oh, geez. And it's strange because Aaron and I will talk and we'll say, you know, but what if, wouldn't it be interesting if like, what would that, what could it be? How interesting would that be? What, well, how do we explain these stories? And then I noticed there is this other subset of people that have abs that get offended at the very idea and feel like they have to be outspoken about ensuring that nobody even brings it up. And that's really strange to me. Yeah. That like, like why? Yeah, what's it, so it's very different to not yeah. believe something. It's another to be aggressively against the idea or the concept. That's that's an entirely different thought process. Yeah, yeah. And I'm allowed to think that that's suspicious as hell. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, because I mean, it is. It is. Mm -hmm. It's a nonsensical reaction. So. We're having our campfire stories. We're sitting around, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about this. But the woods aren't safe. Mm. And this is 
your favorite kind of paranormal scary thing, which I think suggests that it's something that you're very concerned about in your own life. Mm -hmm. You know, seeing an alien, not that scary, or, you know, seeing a, a UFO or perhaps a ghost. But there's something entirely inexplicable, but you're not allowed to really talk about it. And it's only ever discussed in fringe circles, even though statistically it is significant. Mm-hmm. There's something going on in our national parks. Right. So this is what is uh, known as sort of the missing 411, which is there's a gentleman, he's an investigator named David Polites, who for many years has started, has been investigating these cases of mysterious, of people that go missing mysteriously, oftentimes in national parks. Uh, there's, and then, and he is since expanded that to people that go missing essentially anywhere in ways that fit his profile. And I believe the profile is something along the lines of they have to be missing mysteriously. There has to be no suspicion of foul. He basically automatically dismisses things where there's evidence of animal predation, evidence of foul or any evidence or allegations of foul play or um, intoxication. Like he basically evaluates them on all of these levels and says, well, it doesn't seem like this person was taken by animals. Uh, it doesn't seem like this person was killed in foul play. It doesn't seem like that this person uh, was went missing because of any kind of intoxication and sort of combines all these things together and comes up with these cases says like, okay, of all the missing people, there's this subset, which is, I think it's a couple, it's hundreds of cases now fit this profile of being completely unexplained and unsolved. And they all share a bizarre number of similarities and a major similarity. They sh- the, the, the major ones are people that go missing completely without a trace in ways that don't make sense. Oftentimes they'll be found ma- a um, inordinate, a impossible distance from where they were lost. Oftentimes in areas that have previously been searched, and oftentimes, if they're found, say, uh, alive or dead, um, either they're ne- either they're never found at all, or there's um, they have no memory. If they're found alive, they have no memory of how they got there, and it's that they couldn't have made these distances, or they wouldn't have. It's so some of the uh, some of the big ones. So this means missing four one one cases. They all share these bizarre similarities. One of the ones that always seemed somewhat shocking to me is uh, this case of, let me find, it was in 1952, the case of Keith Parkins. Keith Parkins was a two-year-old boy who went missing from his home in Ritter, Oregon in the middle of winter. He had been playing outside with his jacket on, but he was far from equipped to spend the night outside alone. His family, after he went he went missing, basically his, he was playing in the yard and then the house abutted a bunch of woods, which was right under the National Forest. His mother said she looked she looked away and looked back and he was gone. The family and a local search party looked for him immediately. They followed his footprints up in the footprints in the snow up to a point where they stopped. There were no other animals or tracks apparently necessary. Then so then, and then they called in this huge search and rescue effort. 19 hours later, they found Keith. He was 15 miles away 
he was his had taken his jacket off and he was laying face down in the snow in the middle of a frozen pond they found the two-year-old kid alive and when they asked him why he'd run away and how he survived he said he didn't remember now i don't know if any of you remember the show survivor man with les stroud well les stroud the uh guy on survivor man is a knows this david polites and then they they got together and then Les Stroud walked this 15 miles. And this is not 15 miles is just over easy terrain. This is 15 miles over in the mountainous terrain of Oregon. And basically, Les Stroud, a fully grown man, fully equipped and prepared for this, could not travel the 15 miles in 19 hours. And a two-year-old somehow made that same journey in a way that this that Les Stroud couldn't. And he basically says, yeah, at night, in the middle of winter, in the snow, trying to traverse 15 miles, trying to traverse 15 miles in 19 hours just in the snow on flat ground is almost impossible. Trying to do 15 miles in 19 hours over rough, broken, mountainous terrain at night in the snow is impossible for a professional to do, let alone a two-year-old boy who's not equipped with anything who barely who has only has on a thin jacket but no what's the explanation, explanation? There? how did this he kid has... get that far away right or how is he even alive to be honest yeah 19 hours is a very long time and it's mm -hmm. cold yeah i mean this is this is a, a very, very, very small child. Yeah. It has no concept of how to keep warm, has no concept how to even feed themselves. Right. Drink enough water, any of this. Exactly. Now, I mean, you might be able to look back and say survival instinct, right? You know, our our uh, evolutionary mind would trigger and, and mm -hmm. you know, give us at least some idea and some concept. But that doesn't fill the gap of how the hell you traveled through mountainous terrain, 15 miles. Yeah. You can explain uh, one, but you can't explain the other. Right. Here's another one. In 1999, a three-year-old boy named Jared Adadero, living with his sister and his father, uh, and they near the Comanche Wilderness in Colorado. Essentially, everybody's out hiking. They go along. Um, this three-year-old, this three-year-old boy, they're all out hiking. The three-year-old kind of wanders away from the group. Two other hikers in the area saw him walking alone on the trail, but assumed his parents must have just been nearby. Mm -hmm. After this, this three-year-old is never seen again. Every, there's massive search undertaken as soon as the hiking group realized the three-year-old's not there. That's in 1999. In 2003, two hikers climbed a very steep rock face, roughly 550 feet above the trail. At the top of this rock face, they found a child's tooth, a piece of skull, and all of his clothes, which were fully intact and turned inside out. Not covered in blood, not ripped up. They also found one of his shoes. The area where his remains were found uh, four years later had been searched, had been searched, uh, how much time? Uh, had been searched multiple times in the ensuing search effort. And it would have been far too difficult for a child to climb himself up, to climb up to. 
It would have also been almost impossible for an adult carrying a child to climb up to it. Also, it doesn't match a bear or cougar attack because then the clothing would have been ripped and covered in blood. Certainly. Right. That this three-year-old kid suddenly just teleports to the top of this 550-foot rock face and then only bits of skull and teeth and all of his clothes are found intact. There's another story of this in this missing Mormon one canon, which is a gentleman who was a renowned wilderness expert. It's like this guy was, and he was a guide. He was a guide that took people into the Alaskan wilderness. This guy knew what he was doing. He does a solo uh, hunting trip up to this lake in Alaska. Bush pilot drops him off. He's got all of these supplies. He's going to basically camp out at this lake and hunt for elk. And then, you know, like a week later, the pilot was going to land back at the lake and pick him back up. Well, a week goes by, pilot lands, this guy's not there. Pilot's like, well, you know what? It's Alaska. Anything can happen. I'm going to get out and look around because maybe this guy's not at camp. You know, we don't want to miss each other because it takes a while to get out here. This guy can't find him at all. Pilot leaves, comes back with a whole search party, declares this guy missing. They search the area around his camp. They find all of his camp stores are still intact. He hadn't eaten through all his food. All of his stuff was fine. His camp was well set up. He was still fully supplied. They found up against a tree. They found his clothes. His, They found his shirt folded up on the ground. They found his pants laid out on the ground with the socks in the pants and and a few foot bones inside the socks. And that's it. There's no other trace of him. He was just gone. And there's numerous stories like this where people will have disappeared in these weird circumstances. And then in an area that was already searched, they'll find, say, all the guy's clothes neatly folded in a pile set in the, on a rock in the middle of a stream. And this isn't just, this isn't some ghost story that someone read on the internet. This is absolutely verifiable in search and rescue reports that guy was never found again. And in an area we had previously searched, we just suddenly found all of his clothes neatly stacked on a rock in the middle of the in the middle of this stream. Hard to know. So, something is clearly going on there. There's well, there's so certainly, yeah, there's agency involved mm -hmm. because of how nicely, I mean, if, if the, if the clothing was just scattered, yeah, that would be far less suspicious. I mean, it'd be weird enough to have the clothes, you know, clothes being intact and the fact that there's clothes in general, but the yeah. fact that they keep finding them in like, strange but neat yeah piles mm -hmm. yeah this uh, isn't somebody who stripped their clothes off in a derangement and wandered into the woods naked to die sure and then certainly the other part that that i can't i can't get over is a tooth a fragment of skull some foot bones in the socks like what's um yeah why why just a few pieces yep here here's another two couple that are interesting in february 2018 a canadian man named dilly named danny philippidus was on a ski trip with his friends in new york around 2 p.m they'd been skiing for hours they were getting ready to go to the lodge and danny said he wanted to go on one more run before their lunch break at 4 p.m danny wasn't returning anybody's calls and nobody had seen him so everybody began searching for him eventually they had a team of 130 people scouring this ski slope and nobody found him. 
Six days later, his wife receives a phone call. She didn't recognize the number, and it sounded far away and staticky. It was Danny's voice. He was incoherent and confused and then hung up the phone after, after a couple minutes. She called the number back, pleaded with him to call 911 for help, so he did. He had no idea where he was and just described his surroundings. Eventually, paramedics found him. He was wearing all of his ski gear in, in need of medical assistance. He was, and he was holding a brand new iPhone that wasn't his and someone had cut his hair. He was found in Sacramento, California at the airport terminal car rental depot. He was 3,000 miles away from where he disappeared. He couldn't remember how he got there. He had no idea what day it was. When he learned where he was and how long people had been looking for him, he got very overwhelmed and emotional. So in six days, he, in six days, he disappears from a ski slope in New York and six days later is 3,000 miles away in California. And that's not the only story like this that's verifiable. There's another one which was a, in 1977, a 24-year-old man named Stephen Kubaki was cross-country skiing through the snow near Lake Michigan. When he got near the edge of the lake, he took off his skis, sat down to have lunch. When he got up to leave, his own tracks were gone, so he became, he became lost. Last thing he remembers was walking through the snow, feeling numb and exhausted. Then he blacked out. The next thing he remembers, it was spring, he was lying in a grassy field in the middle of a forest, wearing clothes that weren't his. Sitting next to him was a stranger's backpack containing running shoes and glasses that didn't belong to him either. He hiked out to the nearest town, asked a local resident where he was. They told him he was in Pittsfield, Pittsfield Massachusetts, 700 miles away from Michigan, where he remembered where he had been skiing. His aunt and father lived in Pittsfield, so he knocked, went to their house, knocked on their door. The family was in shock. He had been missing for 14 months. When he had first gone missing, the search team found his poles and skis at the edge of the lake. There was only one set of footprints leading to the water, but none walking away, and they assumed he had drowned in the freezing lake. He had been missing for so long, everyone thought he was dead. The case was essentially chalked up to amnesia, and there's no other answers. Huh. Yeah. And this is what I mean, is there are hundreds of these cases. Now, granted, these cases are over many, many years. But it's at least a few cases a year where there is something very unexplainable that happens to people. There have been, and the thing is, not all of these people go missing without a trace and remember nothing. There are a small subset where people have these experiences and essentially live to tell about it. Uh, one of the more recent ones, this was in 1992 in the Smoky, Mountain, Smoky Mountains National Park. There was a park ranger on patrol, just walking through the woods, went to take a drink from his canteen and realized everything in the woods had gone completely silent. So he thought his first gut reaction was, ah, there must be a large predator around, like a bear or something. So all the birds have stopped singing. Okay. And so he did a sensible thing. He found a large tree, kind of hunkered down behind it. And said, okay, if there's a large bear or predator coming along, I'm just going to wait here. I'll either be able to see it or it won't be able to see me and we'll just kind of avoid each other. Well, he sits and waits and it's silent. And then he looks up and sees that the leaves, the trees are swaying and there's wind, but he can't hear any of it. And he starts getting really freaked out because he starts realizing it's not that he can't hear the normal forest noises. It's that everything is essentially stilled 
where he is. That he, he sees things moving and should be able to hear it and can't. So he gets up, it starts walking, and then basically puts his hand out to go, you know, to brace against a tree. And according to him, he said his hand disappeared, like he had put it into some portal. He pulled his hand back, his hand reappears. Stuck his foot in, foot the front of his foot disappeared, pulled it back, foot reappears. He says he can't see anything. It's like this just invisible wall that when he put his hand through, his hand disappeared. So he still gets freaked out, goes back to the tree, hungers back down, just says, kind of tries to figure out what the hell he's going to do, and is very confused. A little while later, all the normal forest noises return. He kind of gets up, cautiously makes his way back down the trail. No other incident. Additionally, there's another story from 2010, or um, in the, pardon me, in the 90s, rural Michigan, two kids playing by the woods, and they see a figure in the woods. But, and this figure is looking up behind the tree. When they get close, it jumps to another tree and is looking at them there. And they said it was, had it on kind of a silly face. And so these two young kids, like, start playing a game with this thing. Like, they'll walk towards the tree it's behind, and then it'll disappear and suddenly be peering at them from the next tree back. And so these kids think it's their father playing a trick on them. And so they keep following this thing. And every time they get close, it jumps to another tree and to another tree and to another tree. Until one of the, the girl looks behind her and realizes they're getting relatively far into the woods now. And, this th and then they both start getting kind of scared and they run back home. Well, what's that? Is that just these kids making something up? Or was that something trying to lure these kids out into the woods? At the same time, there's another story in Ohio. In Ohio, in 2010, a lady, Jan Maccabee, was bow hunting. So she's up in a tree. She's in her hide, just waiting. And she says, then, just like with the park ranger, everything went silent in the woods. It was like, she said it was like she was in, she was wearing earplugs, that everything was just muffled and quiet. And then so she goes stock still. And so she says, in a tree maybe uh, 20, 30 yards away, she sees this shimmering figure. Now, it paints a story like it's from the movie Predator. It's like she sees this shimmering figure. She doesn't move and just stares at it. She says it just sort of stands, stays there seemingly looking at her. And after a while, it hops down out of the tree, silently lands in the ground, and then disappears. And then all the sound comes back. Now, maybe she's making that up completely, but maybe this goes to explain it. Maybe there is something. And all these stories kind of maybe hint to this. This is my own personal theory. There might be something that is in some way hunting people and using essentially some sort of like a, a paranormal predator. Now, if and it's, does it maybe just, maybe all of this is a trap. Maybe it makes some sort of weird scenario where you're going to get freaked out and then run off into the woods and run right into its little portal trap. Or maybe it's projecting a field that nullifies sound so that if you scream, no one can hear you. So like when these children get taken and nobody hears anything go missing, they just disappear. Maybe that's what's going on. I, I don't know. I, I can't make sense of all that information, but it's clearly something going on. And somehow seemingly all of that seems related in some way. Well, certainly like it, some of these stories bear similarities to abductions sure absolutely Lost time amnesia miles and miles sometimes thousands of miles you know unbeknownst to them yeah and but then others 
you know, some of the claims that I've seen for these suggest things like cryptids. Sure. You know, some, uh, isn't it, isn't there some, some of the children, um, that are able to communicate, don't they tell, they tell stories about like having been helped by like a bear or a wolf? Yes. So that's in, in a few of the cases, especially with children that have been found after these events, they have reported, oh, I was taken care of by a bear that fed me berries. And like, like that doesn't make sense. Bears that, don't do that, that certainly makes no sense, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, or, like you know, there was a scenario. wolf that I was taken care of by a big a wolf. There's also at least one of these stories that's verifiable by uh, in these missing 411 canon that's verifiable that the um, as the the initial searches were going on, people reported that they heard a child's yell and then they saw what looked like a large bear rushing away up a mountain slope. Now, again, I don't know what all this means, but there is some component to this where it sounds like there is something taking people and we don't really know what it's doing with them. Like with these children, they just say like, oh, yeah, the bear fed me berries and kept me warm. There's one where a child describes like, oh, I was taken to this underground, to this cave. And oftentimes this involves caves. Like we went back to the bear's cave where we spent the next cup, where we hung out and I ate berries and it was fine. If they can remember that much. There is one where a child describes they were, he went back to, a, he was taken to a cave in the forest where there, his grandmother was there. But he said, yeah, it looked like grandma, but it wasn't grandma. And it tried to like ask him questions and he got real like scared and nervous and didn't want to answer them. And then next thing he knew he was waking up in the woods and ran back home. Huh. And then of course was found as in an area that had previously been searched after he'd been missing for something like two days. I don't know. Well, it's, so it's one that there's too many of these stories that share too many similarities that at least some of them have to be real. Yeah. So something's going on, right? There's something. Mm -hmm. The question is, is what? Like, right? Do you have Do you have ideas? Do you have thoughts? Yes, uh, kind of. I think that it is something kind of paranormal. Something paranormal, clearly, mm -hmm. but that is using the paranormal nature as part of its. Uh, hunting technique now whether it's and i think it's multiple things because like these kids get taken but they don't get eaten these people disappear but then all we find but they clearly are dead because we find their clothes with like a couple foot like toe bones still in their socks and you know or the cases where these people will disappear and then be found wearing someone else's clothes with someone else's phone miles away now, is it something, maybe these people are dying it's, and it's all an accident. Like these people are essentially maybe getting abducted and then instead of being put back where they're supposed to be, you know, whatever abducts them kind of confuses it and says, ah, we'll just toss it here. Possibly like, kind like, of like if you were a naturalist and you were taking sand, uh, specimens in the forest and then you put them back and you're like, well, where did the, where did this, where did this rabbit go? Like we're done, you know, drawing its blood and putting a radio collar on it. Like, was it the one from this part of the woods, that part of it? It's like, ah, just put them anywhere. Like, they'll figure it out. They all look the same to me. Mm -hmm. I can see something like that. Or maybe it's like in the process of this abduction, maybe the person expires and it's like, well, just, you know, transport their remains back to wherever. I don't know. It's 
there's there's too many weird variables for it to make for there to be any one answer that really seems to fit like if it's aliens these other things don't make sense if it's you know something else then these things don't make sense so that's what makes it hard to really speculate on but it seems like there's something happening that we don't understand that at, that can explain this that seems like something's basically piercing the veil whether through high technology aliens or something more paranormal and interacting with people in a way that's not necessarily to their benefit. Well, but part of the other stranger aspect of this is the commonality that this all seems to be happening on federal land. Yeah, and so there is that. And that's a, that's something that's also confusing because the National Park Service also gets, according to this David Polites guy who does all this investigation, he says the Natural Parks National Park Service is very actively uh, almost sabotages his attempts. Like he, one of the main ones he says he, he went and said, well, he's a former, um, I believe he's a former police, uh, police detective who became a private investigator. He said, well, one of the weird things was when park rangers came to him and said, you know, we have all these people missing and no one's really looking into it. He went, okay, well, I'll just go to the park service. They have their own national park service police department. And I'll just ask them for like lists of missing persons in their jurisdictions and they'll, we'll start from there. And then he was told, we don't have that list. And he thought, that's bizarre. Why would a national park, which has its own, each national park has its own little police service. Mm -hmm. Why would you not maintain a list of people that go missing in the park? And he said, well, then and he said, the park service said, well, we don't just, we don't keep records on that. And then when he asked, well, can we get a list made? They said, well, it'll, be, it'll cost $700,000 for us to, you know, put the man hours in to make you a list. And there's numerous other things where he'll ask for information on these disappearances or try to get information from the Park Service. And they seem to be very uncooperative. And according to the uh, some park rangers and other people associated with the Park Service that he's interviewed, basically, he, they say there's there is a active seemingly active effort within the park service to not talk about discuss or investigate any of these disappearances to pretend like it's just not happening and it's only happening at a very small level so i can maybe understand that a few people go missing a year in these extraordinary circumstances but a few people go missing every single year in these strange circumstances that are similar enough that it clearly sh seems like something's going on now maybe all of these are just you know, if you you're just if you cherry pick the data enough, it can look like something's happening. I, like I said, I can't be sold that that's not it. But at the same time, if the National Park Service was, if they if David Plyde said, "Hey, I have this book. I compiled these cases. Everything seems really suspicious." If the National Park Service was, "Oh, well, absolutely, we'll open up our archives to you. We, we'll let, we'll help you as much as we can to get to the bottom of this," I would feel a lot more like. Ah, oh, this probably was just someone with a data set, you know, put stuff together kind of awkward and it looked like something was happening, maybe not. The fact that the National Park Service doesn't seem to be actively aiding the investigation into these phenomenon makes me a little more suspicious. Well, you know, and, and at the same time, like, do you think that the reticence of the national parks is based on the idea of, we can't have people talking about this because then it'll get popular and people won't want to come to the park anymore. That could easily be it. They don't want the negative, negative press. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want people being scared of going to the national parks. Totally. I can totally understand that. 
which is strange given the fact that it's also a national park. And in several of these, people are like, hey, watch out for bears because they'll eat you. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, if they're not afraid of the bear that is real and in front of you, how likely is it that those same people are going to be like, well, I'm certainly not going to go because two people a year sometimes disappear and only their clothes and toe bones are left. Right. Well, okay. So this brings us to another interesting phenomenon that seems, again, I don't know what to make of it and I don't know what connections to necessarily draw with it. But in the United States intelligence community, and in its sort of high-level science divisions, in, say, the nuclear program, in the space program, there is a seemingly bizarre number of occultists that were employed by the United States in all of those branches. Uh, there was a guy, let me look him up real quick, because I get to get all this uh, correctly. Uh, Tom, I, think it's, I think his name is uh, Thomas Aquino. And... Oh, not Thomas Aquinas. That's not it. <laughs> yeah, uh, Thomas Aquinas. His name, Thomas Aquinas. It's weird. He's a saint. Did you know that? Yeah. His name is... Is this the guy? No. Um, <laughs> shoot. Anyway, but I'll, I'll, while I'm looking it up, I'll give the other rundown. So in, in the, the nuclear program, in the, the space program... There were a bunch, of, and in the intelligence community, there was a bunch of people that were famous for studying the occult. Now, we know the intelligence community was getting involved with things like remote viewing, with psychic warfare, and I can't help but think that the two of those things might be related. Well, uh, I mean, that's as simple as putting together some of the, you know, like everybody knows about Operation Paperclip, where you know the the Nazis had all of this rocket technology, and so after World War II, uh, we brought in a bunch of the scientists, and that is what led to the development of the United States' space program. But at the right. same time, the Nazis also were extremely fascinated with the occult. That's the yep. basis of, of the Indiana Jones movies. They're not as farcical as people want to think. There was a very legitimate effort by the Third Reich to look for occult symbols, occult uh, beliefs. You know, the idea that they were looking for, uh, say, the the Ark of the Covenant, the Spear of, um, uh, of Destiny, um, sure. you know, the, the Spear that Pierced the Side of Christ. All of these other uh, symbols and and um, you know trinkets, for lack of a better term, were real mm -hmm. things. There was funding behind it, and there were scientists involved in looking for it. The okay. question is: is why did all of this high science? And you'll you'll give your examples now. But all, all of this high science ties back to um, either the occult or ancient religions, and and for lack of a better term, the ancients even. Even the discussion of nuclear technology, sure, there is that connection that people give to ancient Hindu text. Right. There's also a, uh, ma a major theme in a lot of these occult and especially alchemical dog uh, systems was this idea of breaking the primordial matter. That was a key component of creating the Philosopher's Stone. Well, what is that? Uh, piercing the firmament. And breaking the primordial matter, that's the space program and the nuclear program. Okay. So, uh, 
both both of those ideas where you are piercing the firmament, which is essentially piercing outside to the beyond, and this breaking down of the primordial matter, both of these are replete and just dripping with esoteric symbolism, and yet are also both highly represented in the symbolism of the nuclear program and the space program. Now, whether that maybe that's just coincidence, maybe with people finding cool symbols that seem to fit. I think that either one could be, uh, both of those could possibly be true. Uh, here's the information I was looking for. So there is a gentleman named Michael Aquino, who is a military intelligence officer specializing in psychological warfare. In 1969, he joined Anton LaVey's Church of Satan and rose rapidly within the group's ranks. In 1970, while he was serving with the U.S. military during the Vietnam War, Aquino was stationed in South Vietnam, where he wrote a tract titled Diablicon, in which he reflected upon his growing divergence from the Church of Satan's doctrines. This guy then went on to found a, essentially, occultist group called the Temple of Set, all while being a U.S. military psychological operation, psychological warfare officer. So these, okay. and like, there is a not of a lot of other people involved in these projects, which have a lot of which have occultist, essentially sympathies. So, do you think? Do you think that there's a certain level or? Okay, could it be mm -hmm. that the intelligence community of which you and I were a part of that just so happens to make you want to lean into uh, sort of like a Gnosticism, a, a want to to a, a belief that there's a higher knowledge and that that you must achieve it to to gain understanding? Or is it that at a certain point, so much of ancient knowledge or ethereal knowledge, is how we achieve this higher science, this 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 breaking of the veil, the the you know, the the alchemy mm -hmm. that that you're talking about. Which one sure. is it? Is it possibly both? Is it any? Who knows? Like like, what's what's your thought on that? I, I'm not. I'm not. Like I said, I'm not really sure. All I know is a lot of these ideas are out there, and potentially it is these ideas being out there that encourage people to seek. Um, that encourage people to seek these things out. Now, maybe sort of the nuclear program, the space program, maybe they're not piercing the veil and destroying the primordial matter, matter as part of some greater esoteric occult ritual. But at the same time, maybe the ideas behind that are what promote them to look for these answers in the first place. Uh, the other thing that, again, another connection to this, that again, it's, it's hard to know what all it means. Maybe it's all related and maybe it's nothing, is there was the, is it CERN, in I believe it's Switzerland, where they have the giant hadron hadron collider, they also have a big statue of Shiva, the I think it's the Indian god of destruction. And there was this video that came out of a seemingly a bunch of people conducting a human sacrifice in front of this statue at night. Now it was then of course called by CERN, like oh it was a hoax and people were just doing it as a prank. But at the same time, it makes me wonder is is there some of this that is basically high technology occultism that is seeking to get in contact? But well, because maybe my theory would be this, and I don't necessarily believe this wholly, but my theory would be a theory about this would be that through occult and esoteric methods aimed at getting in touch with 
these higher dimensional consciousnesses in this paranormal sphere. There are efforts undertaken that they're trying to get in contact with these other entities or intelligences to basically get information on the secrets of the universe. Hmm. And and you can see it with, say, high-level the uh, drug experiments by the CIA to in induce altered states of consciousness. Things like CERN, smashing apart things in this large hadron collider. A lot of the efforts seem to be focused on learning that which is hidden or um, retrieving from beyond information that you know advances human science or advances our power here on Earth. Again, that, that's the theory. That's the theory. It's, if this stuff is real, it is being done by these groups and the intelligence community or by these governments essentially to gain an edge on their rivals on earth by getting this knowledge from beyond about the nature of reality but at the same time disciples of these high sciences will mm -hmm. treat it like a cult because sure. coming out of covid it very much appears as one Disciples of these high scientists are, are high sciences are some of the most likely people to deny any potential of there being anything in any sort that there's a beyond at all for which us to for which we could even grab higher knowledge. Right. Right. I mean, that, the, the guy that you were camping with that was just nope, 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 nope. There's no aliens. I mean, w one of one of the things that I consistently talk about was. It, when when Art Bell came back and, and had his program, he brought on Neil deGrasse Tyson because Neil deGrasse Tyson had become exceedingly popular, um, you know, in in the astrophysics community. And of course, you know, Art Bell's like, well, you know, you know, my program, you know what I talk about. I've seen a UFO. What what are your thoughts? And Neil deGrasse Tyson, a man who knows that the universe is this unlimited expanse. And that there's so much that we do not know because a, a an astrophysicist certainly knows a lot, but also is very well aware of how much we do not know. Right, right. And he staunchly and solidly said that there's no aliens. Yeah, I was weak. How? How could you even factually say that? And and. Of course, that's a ridiculous statement that there's no other life. It's impossible that there's any other life in the entire universe. Right. That's a ridiculous statement to make, especially for a scientist. But at the same point, mm -hmm. it suggests a fear. Yeah. And why? Uh, that's a good question. It's... I don't know. It, there, there seems to be definitely this f this large effort to make to keep people from oh trading in these theories and asking questions about them. It is it is it that that these people are terrified that if they don't understand everything, then they have to question what they do know. It, it, is it the idea that if something is unexplainable? by the quote experts mm -hmm. then what else could the experts have gotten wrong and that might require them to critically think or or have to you know look outside of these purported experts for potential explanations and that's a dangerous road to go okay. down because 
Maybe is it something like that? I don't know. I could see I could see something like that. I I think one of the issues to me is a lot of what these people will describe, like Neil deGrasse Tyson. If you're asking me to say, well, there, we have no evidence of aliens, we have no evidence of God, we have no evidence of this paranormal, so there's no evidence, and so that's why we just have to dismiss it entirely. That's the claim, but I, that claim is wrong because there is provable evidence for it. Uh, so, for example, at the very, at the very minimum, um, there, are tests, there, there were tests done where someone had lost a limb and you have phantom limb syndrome, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And some people said they took the, a bunch of those people and then they took people that claimed to be psychically sensitive. And then they put them on either side of a wall. And they said, and then on, on the wall, they had a series of color-coded uh, just spots on the wall. And without telling either one, they just said, okay, person that has lost a limb, that has this phantom limb syndrome, they're like, I they said, I want you to imagine you are pushing your fan your limb that you now don't have your phantom limb just but you can still feel like it's there imagine you're putting it on one of these um spots on the wall that are labeled and then they told the supposedly psychically connected person in the other room you're trying to look for and sense which one of these spots the person is putting their phantom limb on and they can't see each other and they said go and then they would the person would be like i'm thinking about that i'm feeling like i'm putting my phantom arm like on this spot and then the person in the other room say like i'm feeling like he's putting his arm phantom arm on this on his on this spot and they were better than again better than probability would suggest they were right enough of a time that it was significantly above what just random chance would get would garner and in new, multiple experiments like this of whether it's of some sort of psychic phenomenon or paranormal a lot of times it comes back as it didn't work every time but it worked better than random chance so it's kind of it to me feels like there's something clearly going on here that defies explanation but it's provably there and it's the same with a lot of a lot of this stuff is they say there's no evidence which is which gives them covers that there's no evidence so let's never check but i that is i think a fallacy because there absolutely is evidence that it is worth investigating and that evidence is then dismissed to allow them to maintain the fiction that there's nothing worth investigating and when I say they, what I mean is sort of the scientific community. Hmm. Uh, the other, another example is this phenomenon called morphic resonance. It's uh, championed by the guy named Rupert Sheldrake, sort of a philosopher. And he points to a couple things. Uh, and this basically morphic resonance, he basically says, is there is, when according to him, clear evidence of this sort of universal consciousness shared between things in a way that we can't... Um, in a way that we can't explain. Uh, two of the main things he points to is, is in the 70s, they started doing all these experiments with rats and mazes. Mm -hmm. And what he found investigating those results is he found that as more experiments were being done around the world with rats and mazes, rats got better at running through mazes, seemingly oh. in a way that didn't make sense. That if they were doing a bunch of experiments in the United States with rats and mazes, if they started doing experiments in Russia, the rats would be better at the mazes at the beginning 
than the rats in America were when they started the program. It's almost like all rats everywhere were subtly getting better at mazes because someone was running experiments with rats in mazes. And his evidence is very compelling that if, you know, if someone did a test with a rat in a maze, and then 10 years later, after numerous testing, someone did a test with a brand new rat in the same maze, the rats, rats at test that are, that were not even alive 10 years ago, rats would do better at that maze 10 years later than they did 10 years before. Well, to your example of rats in America and rats in Russia, is mm -hmm. it possible that the road, Russian rodent education system is just better? Uh, it's very possible. I mean, so amazing things, apparently. <laughs> I, the other piece of evidence he points to is crystallizing compounds. So chemists will invent a new compound. And it's like, hey, I finally got this weird molecule to crystallize out of a solution. So now we can grab it and use it. And what this Rupert Sheldrake guy found is the first times that a, a chemist will crystallize a brand new compound that has not been created before, it's difficult. And then looking back on their effort, you can now, using the same precursors, more easily crystallize more of the same substance than they could initially. As if chemicals around the world were learning how to crystallize into that substance and can do it better now than they did before. And that sounds like a wild and insane claim. But according to this guy's research, he's like, but it's kind it's true. It will crystallize faster now than it did when it was first discovered using the exact same precursor chemicals. Hmm. Well, but some of this goes back to things like quantum entanglement. Exactly. Exactly. And is that so crazy? Is it so crazy to think that all of these things are kind of entangled at the quantum level and sort of, I think of it like gravity. If I think of there's this uh, paranormal uh, dimension of reality that is consciousness or the soul or whatever, I think of it the way that gra like gravity is described uh, interacting with three-dimensional space. I believe a lot, if you haven't seen it, you should have seen it where it's this, uh, this test done where they have a rubber sheet and the rubber sheet is space-time. And then when they put a bowling ball in the sheet, it deforms it down. And that is a, you know, the gravity in space-time causes it to essentially deform. It makes it so that other, other mass will roll down towards the bowling ball because it's sloping, curving space-time because it's gravity. I think it's something possibly similar with consciousness. Again, my, my own theory is that in this dimension of consciousness, if we're going to say that space-time is the fourth dimension and that gravity can uh, bend space-time uh, based on density and mass, well, mm -hmm. if there is another dimension of reality, which is sort of consciousness or the spirit, I think that, well, let's say it's the dimension of the spirit and then consciousness essentially deforms that dimension just, and just like gravity deforms space-time. All right. Well, unfortunately, we're hitting our, our two hour mark. So we've got to we've got to call it um, because this thing's about to shut off on us. But let us know what you guys think. What do you think is going on? How do you think it is? And uh, leave leave your comments on the show. Other than that, everybody have a happy Halloween and we will be sure to see you guys later. I'm Aaron from the East Coast. I'm Alan from the West Coast. Thanks for listening to me rant. This is wrong think radio we'll see you all next week have a happy halloween <laughs>